Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. Today I'll discuss one of the most important social changes of the 20th century, the rise of working motherhood. 150 years ago, married women's employment was uncommon and socially stigmatised in Europe and the USA. But now, it's widespread, socially expected that women work and have children. Yet social change is notably asymmetrical. Women have encroached into previously male-dominated domains, yet they still undertake the lion's share of care work. Why is this? Fortunately for us, there are three fascinating new books on this very subject. Emma Griffin's Breadwinner, An Intimate History of the Victorian Economy, Helen McCarthy's Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, and Caitlin Collins's Making Motherhood Work. So, before the Industrial Revolution, men and women were economically interdependent, labouring together in a shared enterprise at home, relying upon each other. Men needed women to survive. But that changed with the Industrial Revolution. Real wages increased after 1830 and those wages were monopolised by men. And that radically changed family relations. As Emma Griffin shows by drawing on over 600 autobiographies by working class men and women born between 1830 and 1903. So, what caused the male breadwinner model? Did women not want to work due to the cult of domesticity? Or was it due to low demand? And here, going into the book, I wasn't really sure. So this is where my priors were robbed. As Griffin shows, many teenage girls desperately wanted to work, to have a little economic autonomy and join the public sphere. Factory work was horrific, but teenage girls still sought it as preferable to the relentless drudgery of care work, which confined them to the home and provided no rewards. Their autobiographies revealed their desire for paid work. Yet their earnings were so low and the volume of housework so large that their parents didn't consider it worthwhile. So girls were often saddled with childcare and scrubbing while their brothers were out earning their own money and being valued as financial contributors. Thus, owing to sex discrimination in the labour market, women needed to marry in order to survive. But that did not guarantee their economic security. Women were dependent on men's good graces. And men were distinctly unreliable. Rising male wages did not lift all boats. Moreover, they amplified patriarchy, endowing men and men alone with pride, status, and authority. It's a glorious read. The, the autobiographies reveal how men and women perceived and experienced the world. 
their concerns and constraints, what they took for granted or challenged. And Griffin highlights heterogeneity amongst individuals. Not all men were unreliable. But I have two lingering questions. First, what about regional economic geography? The male breadwinner model was not nationwide. As Shui Sheng Yu shows in a recent Economic History Review article, married women's employment responded to demand. In cotton areas like Lancashire, demand was high and married women's employment was high, regardless of male wages and their own domestic duties. By contrast, in pit villages, women were indeed dependent on men. So I wonder... How did living in a community with a higher rate of female employment shape family life? Did the prevalence of women's paid work in Lancashire and economic interdependence lessen patriarchal dominance in those communities? Or were the women just working for pay without recognition? My broader point here is that individuals develop their aspirations and expectations through observing the communities around them. And there was radical heterogeneity across Britain. So besides looking at individual characteristics, we also need to compare different places. I also wonder, even if women's wages were relatively low, why didn't families value that additional income? Griffin may reply, well, the volume of housework was huge, so the opportunity cost was very low. But I'm not so sure. In other parts of the world, in really patriarchal societies with marked gender pay gaps and huge volumes of housework, women's employment actually rose with industrialization in Tsarist Russia, in Japan's silk mills, in Korea and Taiwan in the 20th century. So what was different about Europe such that women's labour supply did not increase with labour market opportunities? Our next question is how did we escape from the male breadwinner model? To recall, back in 1900, women, mothers' work was socially stigmatised. They were jeopardising their children's health and development. It also signalled men's failure to provide for their families. Given this stigma, married women's labour supply was weakly responsive to demand. Today, working motherhood is socially accepted. So what changed over the 20th century? That is the core question of Double Lives by Helen McCarthy. As a historian, she illustrates a hundred years of social change with anecdotes about individual lives and public discourses. The big step change, McCarthy argues, was the post-war economic boom, the growth in services, the welfare state with rising demand for teachers, nurses and social workers, as well as consumerism. Given labour shortages, employers waived earlier marriage bars and eagerly recruited more women. Women's relative wages increased and so did social acceptance. 
as the economic returns skyrocketed, women pursued education and careers. They became doctors, lawyers, and managers. An additional factor, I think, downplayed by McCarthy is, of course, the rise of part-time work, enabling women to juggle, or better juggle, uh, work and family life. Here, I would welcome more attention to how and why mothers' identities changed over time. As in Britain, in the, in the early and mid-20th century, women's labour market participation was very sensitive to economic conditions. That is, whether the wages they could earn were high or low, what their husband's earnings were like, and there was a satisfaction point. If the husband earned enough, the wife might not work at all. In the late 20th century, that all changed. Women tended to work regardless of economic conditions. Now let me translate that for economists. Women's own wage elasticity halved between 1980 and 2000, at least in the USA, as shown by Blau and Kahn. Women's work also became less responsive to their husbands' wages and more critical to their own identities, as Goldin argues in The Quiet Revolution. So I wonder... What happened? Because this trend is not inevitable. McCarthy treats rates of female employment and social acceptance as conjoined twins. But the connection is not automatic. In most societies, there seems to be a two-step process. First, behaviour changes in response to shifting opportunity costs, such as rising relative wages. Men see their wives' employment as advantageous, given economic conditions. But they may still regard themselves as the rightful breadwinner. And in the workplace, male co-workers may resist women's encroachments into their domains. It is only through prolonged and widespread exposure to many women in the workforce demonstrating their equal competence, together with public debates and militant activism, that co-workers, employers and families become more supportive. This attitudinal change is belated, as far as I'm aware. There seems to be a cultural lag. Stefan Clausen, in the latest issue of World Development, shows that notwithstanding economic growth and rising female employment, the male breadwinner ideology is remarkably persistent, especially in low- and middle-income countries. And this is shown by World Value Survey data. It asks people right across the world, over successive years, when jobs are scarce, men have more right to a job than women. And if a woman earns more than her husband, it's almost certain to cause problems. Do you agree? And in many low- and middle-income countries, their answers have barely budged over the past 15 years. So importantly, if women's work is not broadly accepted, it may trigger violent patriarchal backlash to protect and preserve men's presumed dominance, their entitlements. In rural Kenya, for example, women's earnings became increasingly crucial to household survival over the 1990s. But male reactions were hostile, and this is captured in Silberschmidt's book, Women Forget That Men Are Masters. 
Or take Eve teasing in South Asia, men sexually harassing women who made independent encroachments into the public sphere. Moreover, if women's employment is not fundamental to their own identities, it may recede as men's wages rise. Take China, for instance. Chinese women's employment shot up under communism, but fell as families got richer in the 2000s. And this is consistent with World Value Survey data, indicating a remarkably persistent male breadwinner ideology. Japan is another fascinating example. Like Europe and the USA, it experienced a post-war economic boom, consumerism and a welfare state. All the conditions highlighted as critical by McCarthy. But the male breadwinner model persists, both in thought and practice to this day. So what was different? I suggest here that taking a more globally comparative perspective can help us realize additional characteristics in Europe. And as I say, we need to differentiate between rates of employment and broad social acceptance. I'm a little skeptical that they happened at the same time and for the same reasons. McCarthy's book also stresses a challenge. Working mothers struggle to do it all, paid work and caregiving. Feminist activism in the 1970s radically changed the discourse, of course. Women increasingly recognised that their problems were collective and structural. But the difficulty of working motherhood persists. And as a consequence, women predominate in low status, poorly paid, flexible employment. Now, some say this just reflects women's inherent preferences, to paraphrase Catherine Hakim. To interrogate that claim, Caitlin Collins undertook comparative qualitative research in Sweden, Germany, the UK and USA. In Making Motherhood Work, she examines how government policy shapes contemporary families' expectations and behaviour. Her work is enlightening. I'm doing everything subpar said one of her middle-class uh, American informants. And that narrative was common in her American sample. Rather than critique their long hours, their demanding employers, or lack of workplace support, American women tend to be upset with themselves. They take personal responsibility, pumping at their desk, using individual coping strategies, seeing child-rearing as a private responsibility rather than even contemplate, let alone demand, government support. Whereas the vast majority of Swedes, 83%, think that government agencies should be the primary providers of preschooler care. Why is that? Well, government services are affordable, high quality. Everyone uses them. It's normal, expected. Shame to miss out. So by taking this comparative perspective, Colin shows how family-friendly policies enable working motherhood and raise expectations. By contrast, American mothers seem trapped in a negative feedback loop. Uh, never seeing better, they do not ask for more. And for me, this really squashes arguments about women's inherent preferences. 
Actually, they vary internationally, partly in response to more family-friendly government policies. Now, Collins has another argument, which I'm less convinced by. But let's see what you think. She suggests that if only American families realised and could envision collectivist solutions, then they would surely demand and secure the same. I'm sceptical for two reasons. One is the USA's culture of economic individualism and a traditionally stingy welfare state. Secondly, even when women have experienced collectivist solutions to child rearing and seen benefits, that doesn't seem enough to secure their survival of those institutions. Just look at the former Soviet Union. Well, you let me know in the comments what you think. Now, let me summarise the three books. A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, British women's work was poorly paid and socially stigmatised. It has since gained social acceptance. But care burdens persist and will continue to do so if women blame themselves for failing to do it all in the absence of family-friendly policies. Methodologically, these three books show this through in-depth qualitative research, autobiographies, archives and interviews. They add analytical rigour by tracing change over time, across the century, over people's lives and between places. In this review, my meta-contributions have been twofold, pushing for more subnational and international comparisons. So while I love that Collins shows how government policies shape individual choices, thereby attending to the macro and the micro, I ask what about place? Contrast the rural and urban within Sweden, for instance, or pit villages and cotton areas in industrial Britain. Second, I would love these brilliant scholars to study other world regions, because that pushes us to ask more questions and finesse our analysis about the single country case study. Well, these three books have absolutely rocked my prize and I hope you've enjoyed this review. Take care, everyone.